Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've turned tuned into Rediscovering New York, turned the dial to Rediscovering New York, but also tuned into Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, and I love New York. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing city. On many shows, like tonight's, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood, exploring its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. Sometimes we host a show about an interesting and vital color of the city that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. On prior episodes, you've heard us talk about presidents who've been to New York. We talked about African-American history in the city for Black History Month. We've talked about the history of the women's suffrage movement and the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. In the future, we will journey to some of the city's parks, the subway, and next week, even some of its more interesting cemeteries. That should be a really interesting show. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight, we're going to visit a neighborhood in Queens, one that has an interesting history and an even more interesting present, and that is Astoria. Uh, the first guest that we have actually was not the one that was advertised for the show, but uh, uh, Bob Singleton is rode in on a horse helping us out in this situation of uh, almost not having a guest for the first segment. Bob is a Long Island City, New York historian with deep community activist roots, including in Astoria. He went to NYU Stern School of Business, and his career held important positions on Wall Street and in corporate finance. Uh, as a board member and executive director of the Greater Astoria Historical Society, Bob has contributed to its significant growth and is often cited in articles and books. And a little later in the broadcast, we're going to talk about a special project he's working on. Bob is currently spearheading a project to establish a library and research facility related to Astoria and Long Island City's rich history. And talking about Long Island City's rich history, uh, Bob is descended directly from Edward Hart, who was the town clerk of Flushing and who wrote the Flushing Remonstrance. That's the first document of religious freedom in the Americas. It was uh, written, I think, in the 1650s. Uh, another ancestor, John Hart, signed the Declaration of Independence. Their influences led him to believe that a community only survives when it has a multi-generational sense of pride in its heritage. And being the true flavor of the United States and an American, Bob's mother's side is from Serbia. In fact, his grandfather lived with the Roma in Eastern Europe, a true American story. Bob, welcome back to Rediscovering New York. I'm pleased to be here. Uh, are you from New York originally? No, originally I grew up in Pittsburgh, um, but I realized that New York was really the center of finance and, and business, and that's where I wanted to go. So I was very fortunate. I had an opportunity to uh, continue my education at NYU. I live in a dorm acclimated me to the city, and I've never looked back. I mean, there's one of the best ideas, you know, is to come to New York City. It was a fabulous uh, choice. Well, I should have detected your accent being from the Berg, but I didn't quite, you've uh, evolved into a little bit of a different <laughs> You never one. lose that. Um, when you went into finance, when did you decide to leave that career and then go into something more colorful in history? Well, that's, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I worked at, at a bank at Wall Street, in a liter one Wall Street, literally, and I worked at, you know, Sony Corporation as assistant treasurer, and it sounds like really great things. I was, you know, not even 30 at the time. But it really hit me that working in those kind of positions, you were really sort of a cog in a big corporation. And businesses were more like a sort of a buccaneer, somebody just going out and putting things together and observing and doing really interesting stuff. So I walked away from that. It took a big, big career decision. I knew I was young enough to be able to make these choices. And I decided to actually work with artistic and creative people. I was involved in actually... Um, in Soho in the 80s, where we did a lot of the accounting, bookkeeping for a whole bunch of artists, uh, galleries, uh, greeting card companies, and that's, that was really a lot, that was very, very fulfilling. I enjoyed it thoroughly. It was a good choice. Did you know Charles Leslie and Fritz Lohmann by chance? the founders of the Leslie Loma Museum of LGBT art, they were uh, uh, landlords in Soho and also fostered 
uh, LGBT artists in Soho in the early days of when uh, the galleries were sort of opening up there? I didn't know them directly, but a good portion of our clients uh, were, were, were from the gay, drawn from the gay community. And it was really sad when, when things really changed in the early 90s and many of them passed on. Um, and, but it's a beautiful, fabulous chapter in my life. And I really look forward or look back towards it as being a really fabulous time with knowing a lot of really incredible people. Little bit plug for our uh, uh, archive. We one of our episodes around Stonewall, Stonewall Fifty, was an episode about uh, Soho, and actually Charles Leslie was a guest on our show and talks about those times, among others, in, in the neighborhood. How did you come to be affiliated, Bob, with the Greater Astoria Historical Society? Well, I had a friend of mine who lived in in Astoria, and you know, again, you touch upon the family genealogy. Um, it's really interesting because they actually lived. Uh, on what is today the same street that she lived on, you know, but near like uh, in Maspeth. And so I sort of felt an affinity. I would walk around the neighborhood. I fell in love with the community. It sort of reminded me a bit about Pittsburgh, where you had just regular folks that, uh, you know, had really, really fabulous um, position being next to New York City. It was the best of both worlds. It was a small town environment, and you had the advantages of a great uh, major city within a few minutes. Hmm. Uh, and how long have you been involved with the uh, the historical society, society uh, since uh, I would say probably at this point about twenty five years or early nineties we got involved in it and we literally uh, received just a box of paper and everything from that point that we developed uh, was through hard work uh, but it's not really work I mean if you enjoy something you really don't work you just have a grand grand time doing things and uh, we just love this and it's a, one of the best choices I ever made. Well, it sounds like a life's work and a labor of love to be involved with the society for 25 years. And that brings us to Astoria. Uh, were there Native peoples living in what would become Astoria before Europeans settled, uh, settled oh, the area? Oh, definitely. It was very interesting. The actual settlements that were uh, created, the, the Astoria, the, the original streets and everything, was, was based over, really overlaid where the Native settlements were and the Native uh, trails were. Um, it, it's really interesting that the uh, uh, there's, for example, uh, a place called um, in Ravenswood uh, Sunkisk, which is a stream, and it was known as the place as the place of the Sachem's wife. And we believe that the in the native uh, tribes, the the women uh, had a very important role within society. And they would go into these marshes and put together food, you know, put together herbs and medicines, what have you. They would gather the 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 the, the crops and then bring them back to the the village and use it for food, for medicine, for healing. For religious purposes. Oh wow, it's great to know yeah. that. You know, one of the things that's not talked about that much uh, when people talk about the history of New York City are the people who were here before Europeans came. And I'm always interested, specifically in different neighborhoods, uh, what the history of Native peoples were. Um, does the colonial history of Astoria go back as far as when the Dutch were were here at, at this part of, in this part of New Netherlands? Most definitely, there there was a, a number of different levels that the Dutch were involved in Astoria. First of all, it was a place where when people retired from the Dutch Indies Company, they didn't have money to pay them retirement, so they gave them land. They had lots of land, and they had the option of either farming it or selling it, and that's how they got their land. Also, uh, there was um, the uh, this was a trading port, um, and and so there was the waterfront. And so a lot of ship captains uh, were given land grants along the East River. Um, now, the, the Dutch themselves uh, did have a very important role within Astoria, but they also there was a lot of English that came in from New England because the Dutch offered them religious freedom. Uh, including your, uh, uh, your ancestor. That's exactly, flesh, that's exactly, exactly. That's why they, they settled uh, in, in Maspeth in, in Astoria. Hmm. Uh, who was William Hallett, and when did he come to the William area? was one of those people who had a very colorful uh, past, uh, and he ended up uh, in Astoria. This was the first settlement. It was actually a native village there. Um, they Actually, to this day, it's called Pot Cove, but there was all these pots, native pots that was uh, in, the, in the sand at the waterfront at one time. And uh, he created... Um, a farm there, uh, and he actually ran the ferry between Manhattan and uh, and Queens. Um, William Hallett uh, also had a fabulous clay uh, deposit, and the bricks of New Amsterdam, a large portion of them, were bricks that were uh, actually um, uh, fired and, and put together in Astoria. Wow, Lower Manhattan was built with with uh, soil from Queens. I love that. <laughs> Isn't uh, that? Talk about being a multi-borough city. Yes, sir. Um, 
Something that a good part of New York history is infused with, Bob, is history during the Revolutionary War. Did anything of note happen during the war and what would become a story? Oh, yes. As a matter of fact, our earliest images we have of Astoria was drawn by British officers who were detached to uh, observe um, the artillery duels. There was a huge artillery duel between... um, uh, Gracie Mansion in Manhattan, or the area of Gracie Point in Manhattan, and Hallett's Cove. Um, and we actually have uh, images of these drawn. It was actually incredible to actually match up the landscape of today with these uh, initial images. But the area was pretty much under the heel of the uh, British throughout this time period. And one other thing, too, I, I didn't mention before was that the tide mills, which are the things that made New York great, the tide mills were scattered in Astoria um, along Dutch Kills and ah. along uh, Hallett's Cove. And if you take a look at the New York City coat of arms, there's the beaver. Everybody knows that. There's the windmill. Everybody knows about that. But there's also flour barrels. And it's those millers are the ones that really created the really what we know as the New York spirit. After they were given the privilege of the mills, the, the trading, the ships, building the ships, that launched New York City to greatness. So Astoria had a very, very important role in the early history of this area. Um, it was, it was not, it, at that point, it was actually detached. It was actually part of Manhattan. And later, it became part of um, Queens uh, County. Um, but that actually, several generations, they were actually considered to be part of Manhattan. So the spirit of places like Astoria and, and Western Queens is kind of unique because it's a hybrid of both, uh, both Queens and of Manhattan. That's one thing I love about the show and exploring neighborhoods is we have such a rich history throughout the city, 250 square miles, and there are things about the city and about sp- individual neighborhoods that are just so rich and that I have never even known about until I've had uh, uh, great guests on the show. Uh, let's move past the revolution and go into the 19th century. Um, who was Stephen Halsey, and did he also have a, He had an impact, didn't he, in how Astoria eventually got its name? Stephen Halsey, I think, would be a, a, an ideal example of, of a classic, uh, we would today consider a New York business person. He would, he would see uh, an opportunity and move to create something of it. He uh, lived uh, in Flushing, commuted every day uh, through the East River down to the Wall Street area. He worked for John Jacob Astor, the, the, the famous uh, merchant of Fur. Uh, his older brother, uh, John Cook Halsey, uh, actually started Astoria, Oregon. So yes, there's a relationship between Astoria, Oregon, and Astoria, Long Island, or Astoria, New York. So he saw this promontory, and he said, you know, this looks like a really fabulous community could be developed here. It's a beautiful location, uh, excellent, lo- you know, uh, right, right next to Manhattan. Uh, the, the soil looks great. It's beautiful views. Let me talk to the local landowners. He did. They thought it was a great idea. In the 1830s, they went up to Albany and got a charter for a village. It was the first village created in, I think, New York State since the American Revolution. Wow. And that's also how Astoria got its name. That's correct. Well, there's a great story. He um, went across the river, and actually you, you could almost see John Jacob Astor's mansion from, he lived in Yorkville. Uh, and so he said, he said to everybody, let's change the name from Hallett's Cove to Astoria. I know old man Astor, and uh, we'll work for him, and we'll talk to him, and he'll be so flattered that he will say, okay, he'll give us lots of money. Well, he went, he talked to him, and Astor was America's first millionaire, but he was also uh, a notorious skinflint. And he said, I'm sorry, I'm not about to go to Astoria, Oregon, which your brother founded, and I'm not giving it across the river to what you did, but I'll give you, you know, a few hundred dollars, mm. and have a good day. We should also say that Stephen Halsey was in the same business as John Jacob Astor in the fur trade. Yeah. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Bob Singleton of the Greater Astoria Historical Society. Uh, we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.
Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back, and you're back to Rediscovering New York and this episode about Astoria in Queens. Uh, my first guest is Bob Singleton, the executive director of the Greater Astoria Historical Society. Bob, do you want to talk a little bit about the society and some of the upcoming programs and projects that you're working on? Well, the Greater Astoria Historical Society encompasses um, New York's third city. You know, everybody knows about New York City and Brooklyn, but there was the third city, Long Island City, which existed from 1870 to 1898. Um, we have a lot of names for it. We call it New York's Other City. Um, and it's just a fabulous opportunity to uh, be able to recreate its history, um, to put together programs, walking tours, lectures throughout the community. And I have a special announcement, if I may. Oh, uh, please, yes. This, this, uh, this year, May of this year, will be the 150th anniversary of the founding of Long Island City. And it's information right now, but we intend to have programs in all the constituent neighborhoods of Long Island City. That's Steinway, Old Astoria, uh, the Broadway, Norwood, um, Sunnyside, Hunters Point, Dutch Kills, Ravenswood. Uh, and it's going to be absolutely tremendous. We're going to have a lot of fun. We've got a lot of good people we're working with and a lot of people in the different neighborhoods that we've come to know over the last couple of decades. So this is going to be a real, real picnic. Actually, we may have a future show that t touches on that closer to the anniversary date. Um, what is, how can people find out more information about these upcoming events? Well, we're, 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 working, we're working with the board right now in putting together a program. And as soon as things are established, the logo and what have you, we will be, of course, um, telling everybody about that. And we are going to hit the ground running within uh, a matter of a few months, if not weeks. We're gonna actually going to start programming, doing tours, and setting up uh, locations within the various communities, uh, giving talks. You know, we, we've been doing this for a, a, a few years, a few decades, I should say, and we have a lot of material. And so all it takes is for us to be able to put together a system that we can then con you know, convey this to the community. It's going to be a lot of fun. And what's your website? Astoria, www.astorialic.org. It's uh, the components of Astoria and Long Island City. City. Oh, great. Well, speaking of a story, getting back to it, we're mm -hmm. going to uh, go, uses a, a, a midway point, the middle of the 19th century, 1850. Uh, beginning then, there was an interesting influx of residents and businesses uh, who were actually German-speaking, and there were many cabinet and furniture makers. One of them was named Heinrich Engelhard Steinweg. Who was he, and what was his significance in Astoria, of Queen, in Astoria and Queens, and also in New York City? Well, I have to, I, you know, I've, I've done a lot of research. I was actually privileged to know the late Henry Z. Steinway, the last family member to, to run the corporation, the, the great grandson, I believe, of Heinrich. And I call it really a household of genius. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. They, they came as immigrants to America. It took them, you know, a decade to learn the language. They made pianos. And within 20 years, they were making pianos that were the standard, the industry standard, that, uh, something they hold to this day. In other words, let's say that you go to a concert. Let's say you hear a recording of music. 98% of the time, 
it will be a Steinway piano, either made in, long, in, in Astoria or made by their other affiliate uh, in, in Germany. So that's really incredible. And it says a lot about the caliber of people. Yes, it's working class people, uh, it's working individuals, and yet the kind of things that they're involved in uh, is a very, very sophisticated at a very, very high level, admirable level. Well, when they uh, settled and built their businesses, they built a sawmill, they built a foundry, even a streetcar line. It was incredible. They, 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 and it's, it's interesting, too, because this is also the 150th anniversary of Steinway coming to Astoria uh, in July of this year. And, and they basically came out, they bought a bunch of farms and planned everything. They graded everything, got architects to design housing out of their own pockets. They paid for the firehouse, the library, the kindergartens. You know, it was not a company town. You know, people sometimes call it that. I was going to ask you about yeah, that. I yeah, heard it I was, know. It, it, and, and that's, and that's uh, people often say that. But we found out that only about a quarter of the people actually worked for Steinway. There was other companies there. There was a silk works. The silk industry was extraordinary. Up until actually very recent, there was the silk industry in the area. So, so what we had, again, are working people doing incredible stuff. I read that part of the motivation of establishing the Steinway factory in Astoria, uh, including establishing company housing, was a way to keep their workers away from the ferment of labor organizing and even what they saw as radicalism in other parts of the area, including, including the Lower East Side. Well, th there, was, there was a lot of... It's very interesting. The Steinways themselves um, came... I think they, 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 they grew up in Germany when there was a lot of ferment between the left and right and revolutions and what have you. And compared to what we consider of, of, of industrial giants of the time, they were very, very uh, kind to their employees by, you know, developing housing, developing uh, even a resort, which is today, uh, the LaGuardia Airport originally was a resort that the Steinways designed, not only for their employees, but for everybody. Everything was open to all. Wow. Well, let's move a little bit uh, uh, beyond, around that same time, um, the hamlet of Astoria, along with Ravenswood, Hunter Point, and Steinway, as you talked about, they voted to become part of the consolidated city of Long Island City in 1870 which um, probably wasn't too different in principle from the growing consolidation of the city of Brooklyn around the same time, and then the consolidation of Greater New York City that happened just 28 years later in 1898. What advantages did people who live in Astoria see in becoming part of an incorporated city? It was sort of a mixed bag. You know, on one hand, you did have... Uh, you know, some heft, as opposed to being simply a village as part of a larger township. Now you were an independent city. You could have your own judiciary. They moved, actually, the courthouse to, to the area for the entire county. Uh, trade increased. Uh, manufacturing increased. So it was a more prosperous area. There were some divisions, though, because back in those times, the only way that you could get money for your, your community, uh, they didn't have income taxes, so you had to tax property. So the property owners in Astoria, which is more rural than in uh, other parts of the area, uh, resisted that. But ultimately, everybody uh, ended up working together, and long, it, the, the whole community of Long Island City, Astoria and Long Island City, uh, really melded together and was uh, successful in the end. Bob, what's the oldest part of Astoria that we can see today that's still standing? Um, old Astoria Village um, has buildings in it that may even date as early as the late 1700s, certainly the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s. It's the largest community in New York City that unfortunately does not have landmark protection. Um, but uh, we do give tours of it, and if you go onto our website, um, I invite you to come on to a tour and see there's some really incredible buildings, incredible stuff, incredible history there. Mm. When would the building landscape of Astoria begin to look like the neighborhood that we see today? The Obviously, excluding the bridges that are there. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, the bridges was uh, the Queensboro Bridge was at the southern end, and of course, the the Hellgate Bridge um, were, were big game changers. But really, the, the the thing that really changed stuff, I think, was the, was the subway that came in. Um, and incidentally, that was the Steinway idea. They wanted to bring the subways uh, into Astoria and, and really into the borough of Queens. Uh, William Steinway was on a subway commission. People don't often realize that he was really a, a multifaceted person. Um, but that really started the, the community's growth. And we're doing a series of overlays of maps. And it's really interesting. You know, take a look at 1850. It starts to go from farms to suburbs. But it's about 1900, 1920. When those subways come in there, that's when you see the explosive growth and you get the recognizable um, Astoria that you see today. Well, the subway line, the Astoria line, has a very interesting history. Uh, for those of us who've lived in the city for decades, we all know the old acronyms, the IRT, the IND, and the BMT. 
um, uh, the Astoria line became a BMT line, but it's first what we became known as the IRT, and the significance of that was when the Interborough Rapid Transit was first built, uh, the subway cars, the rolling stock was a certain width, uh, but then when the BMT opened up, um, uh, the cars were actually uh, one feet and four inches wider. They were eight inches wider on each side. In fact, if you go to the Transit Museum, which is an old IND station, you have to have ramps to get into the old IRT trains. And they had to actually shave the platforms in Astoria when they converted the line from being an IRT line, which was actually uh, would have been the number eight train, to... Um, uh, I'm sorry, not the number eight train. I misspoke. But uh, it uh, it was the Flushing line versus the Astoria line. I'm thinking about the one in the Bronx. But they had to actually had to shave the plat eight inches off the platforms to uh, actually get those trains up. Um, Want to go back just a little bit and ask you if um, the neighborhood change, I know the neighborhood change with the subway and the bridges. How did the change in the neighborhood become affected after New York was consolidated in 1898? Well, that, that was the beginning of, of, the, of the whole change uh, of, of the area in terms of the modern Long Island City that we know, because it became a commuter suburb. Uh, people were able to, it's really interesting, as I said before, long, the, the area is sort of a hybrid between Queens and Manhattan, because when you, when you talk to people in Astoria, you know, they work in Manhattan, they, they uh, you know, they, 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 they go out to nightlife is in Manhattan, but they also do it in they have, you know, work in Astoria and do nightlife. Nightlife is in Astoria too. So it's a hybrid. It's, it, as I said before, it, it's 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 a wonderful small community that everybody kind of knows each other, and yet you have the advantages of a great city. So it's kind of the sweet spot. It's kind of an ideal location to be. There was a very important industry that had some companies that were based in Astoria beginning right after the First World War, and that was the motion picture industry. Who were the, some of the companies that set up studios there, and uh, who were some of the major industry players? And any names that we would know today? Well, the famous player Lasky's, I think, was the was the initial studios. It, it's really interesting. What happened was, I think, one of the reasons that they moved there was because of the tradition of craftsmanship. Because what we find is, if you take a look at the film noir movies from the 1920s, 1930s, the beautiful um, um, set backdrops was obviously somebody who had fabulous carpentry skills. And I would think that many of the people that worked at those studios had relatives or even had training at Steinway. Okay. Wow. So, and, and then you see the beautiful costumes. I mentioned earlier how the silk industry was very, very in, important. So there were the costumes and these, these beautiful musicals and what have you were sewn by women who lived in Astoria. Uh, so, so as they said, they were working people, and yet their skills were extraordinary. And I think that's one of the reasons why, the, you know, they talk about the movie industry moving there because of vaudeville, the, the, the stage in New York and all that. But there was another dimension, and that was the actual back, back lot people. Hmm. And actually, we had uh, a resurgence of movie production in the 1970s. Paramount, which had been in Astoria, they came back. And some of the movies that uh, were filmed there were Sidney Lumet's The Wiz, Bob Fosse's All That Jazz, and even Woody Allen's Radio Days. That was in 1987. Um, we just have another minute or so, and I wanted to ask you about ethnic communities in Astoria. Um, first, there were many German-speaking peoples, and then maybe after the turn of the century, you had many Irish-speaking people and Italian. And then beginning in the 60s, um, you had a lot of Greek immigrants. In fact, it said that a third of the Greek immigrants who came to New York in the 60s made Astoria their home. Um, have there been any changes in the kinds of ethnic communities that we've seen more recently well, in Astoria? Well, let me, let me also state that these people, everybody that came to Astoria, every group that came to Astoria brought something with them. And especially when you get the Italian, Greek communities, the Germans before them, loved food. And Astoria is legendary for its food choices, its restaurants, its places, its dining places. I'm getting hungry just you, <laughs> you say know, that I having mean, dined in a number of really restaurants in Astoria. When you go to other neighborhoods and you look for a place to eat, and you say, I wish I was back in Astoria. You know, now mm. we have uh, a, another batch of people. We have the Brazilians, we have uh, the Bangladeshis, um, you know, little Egypt that's on Steinway Street. And, and again, the really neat thing about this is it works. These are people that, you know, when, when, when you see the new, new waves of immigrants coming there, the new neighbors, you, you recall yourself. You know, I call my, my grandparents and from my mom's side and what have you. And immediately you get a connection with people and, you, and you, it gets along. That's the really neat thing about Astoria is that it's, it's America. 
You know, and it's, it's still people a, that gets along together and work together. And Astoria is a great neighborhood. It's at the end of the N and the W trains. Uh, I actually take the M60 bucks over the Triborough Bridge, excuse me, the RFK Bridge to visit it. Uh, I highly recommend it as well as its great restaurants. Bob, thank you. Um, our first guest on this show about Astoria has been Bob Singleton. Bob is the executive director of the Greater Astoria Historical Society, and you can find out about its programming at www.historialic.org. Bob, it's been thank fun. You. Thank you. We'll be back in a minute, and when we come back, we're going to be speaking with a special guest who heads an arts institution, which is based in Astoria. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors. Christopher Pappas, mortgage specialist at TD Bank. To find out how Chris can help you with all your residential home mortgage needs and tailor a mortgage that's right for you, please give him a call at 203-512-3918. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212 212- 495-0317. Our show is about New York, especially its neighborhoods, and the myriad textures of our amazing city. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like this show on Facebook, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My Instagram and Twitter handles are JeffGoodmanNYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, Jeff at RediscoveringNewYork.nyc. One other note before we get to our second guest, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about the real estate business, when I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city, where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out, over, within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Our second guest is Hung Yi Lee Krakauer. Hung Yi is the executive director of the Queen's Council on the Arts. In the past 15 years, she has raised over $12 million in grants for artists and is an experienced grant reviewer for foundations and corporate philanthropies around the country. She's a proud Queens girl and writes about how to create a rich life at www.hungi.com 
and is a contributing writer for the Huffington Post. Hoonyi also writes and illustrates children's books. She is the author and illustrator of Rabbit Mooncakes, a multicultural picture book for children published by Little Brown and Company. We have a lot to ask Hoonyi about. She's a graduate of Oberlin College. Hoonyi attended the Mozartam in the Mozartam in Salzburg. That's in Austria, by the way, and received a Master's of Music in Piano Performance from the Manhattan School of Music. She is married to a nice Jewish boy from Rockaway, that's in Queens, by the way, where they live with their three children, Mickey, Remy, and Skye. Hoonyi Krakauer, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here with you. You are originally from New York, and you're a Queens girl. What part of Queens did you grow up in? Did you grow up in Rockaway? Or grew did up in Fresh Meadows, went to Bayside High, 72, whoop. <laughs> and married a nice Jewish boy from Rockaway. What can I tell you? Oh, and that's why you live in Rockaway. Okay. Yes. Did you move there before Sandy or after Sandy? I endured Sandy. Oh, gosh. I was in the roof, on the roof with my, my oh, son. Oh, my God. I mean, you know what? Irene happened the year before. Everybody said, go away. We went away. Nothing happened. Then Sandy came. Everybody said, it's, it's going to be less than a Category 3. Don't worry about it. So, you know, history has shown that was a that was not true. So we my, were there. My mother has the same story. When Irene hit, she has a place in the Catskills. She left. They said leave. She left her place in Manhattan Beach in Brooklyn, went up to the Catskills. Eight inches of rain, four hours. Houses got washed away. We were without power. The roads were closed. There was no electricity. The next time, she said, I ain't leaving. And then sure enough, Sandy, you know, 11 feet of water in the house. Thankfully, no one was hurt. Property can be replaced. Uh, when did you start studying and creating art? It's different from your music background, which I also want to ask you about. Define art. Um, visual art. <laughs> well, actually, uh, not, may, maybe that's a misnomer on my part. Uh, well, let's first talk about your, your uh, artistic history. Uh, you studied at Oberlin. Did you study music? Or, uh, did, did, did I you was just a study piano music major, or, uh -huh. a fine arts major. But I have to fine. say the creative impulse uh, for me was born out of frustration because when I was in ballet school, I fell off the stage, so my parents said, put her on something stationary. So I studied the piano. And then 18 years later, I said, you know, I really don't like being in a room by myself for four hours a day. You know, that's like a very solitary instrument in that when you're a solo pianist, it's just you. If you're a violinist, you could join an orchestra, mm. right? You could be in a group. And I said, mm -mm, I, can't, I can't be by myself for eight hours a day. So I started to funnel that creative impetus into writing, into drawing, into other things. The discipline that I developed to be able to sit for eight hours a day doing one thing was able was uh, the reason why I was able to do other things that mm. were equally creative. We'll talk about some of those in a second. I'm still interested in your in your musical studies. So, how did you get to go to the Bozarteum in Salzburg? What uh... stroke of a pen? Huh? If you remember. Uh, uh, Communist China was the bad country. We used to call it communist it China. Bad, now, right? now it's mainland China. Right. Then it was communist China. Well, in the late um, in the late seventies, uh, I had a scholarship uh, for descendants of people from China. And then, if you remember, I don't remember what year it was that the UN decided not to recognize mainland China. They recognized Taiwan as China. All of a sudden, I was not Chinese anymore. So my scholarship went out the window, and um, I went to Oberlin. And Oberlin was a private school. So my sister and I decided, well, you know, we have repertoire. She was also a pianist. So we flew to Europe, and we auditioned at the Paris Conservatory, the Salzburg, um, the Mozartam in Salzburg. And we would have gone to Perugia, but we got into Salzburg, and it was the hills were alive, and there we were. Wow. So we went to school for $95 a year. Wow, wow. It's funny, common threads. I meet a lot of interesting people on the show. Uh, full disclosure, I sometimes uh, meet uh, no guests who've come before they come on the show. Uh, Hoonyi and I first met about, about a half an hour ago. Uh, I have a friend who uh, had a similar path. He went to Oberlin. He studied voice. He went to the Mozarteum in the early 60s, and he got his master's degree uh, at uh, Eastman instead of you getting at the Manhattan School of Music, and he was in voice. Um, it would seem that music was going to be your calling, but you decided that you would get into the business or into the work of supporting other artists in their work and also in expressing themselves and expressing themselves to people. Uh, I want to talk about hoongyi.com. That's your website. That's different from the Queen's Council on the Arts. What was your inspiration for your, for your website? Um, I figured out a lot of things because I was an artist. 
I consider myself an artist first. It has both sides of my brain that work at the same time. And I figured out how to write a grant. I figured out how to pitch. I figured out a bunch of things that uh, a lot of my colleagues just didn't know how to do. So I started to share those stories online. And it was with the goal of making sure that anybody who wanted to be creative had everything that they had they could have at their disposal to make that possible. Before we get to your work on the council, uh, and also with talking about Astoria, uh, I want to ask you about how you came to write and illustrate children's books. That has to be one of the most, to me, who's not an artist, just one of the, hearing that one of the most wonderful things with people who not only write, but also who illustrate their own children's books. Well, you could say I switched one set of keyboards for another. Right? Um, it was because I was pregnant and it was a pain in the neck, and my sister said, You either have to hook a rug or knit a sweater or do something because you're insufferable. So she gave me a clipping from the Boston Globe, and it was the New World's Fiction Contest from Little Brown and Company. And I picked the children's book category because you only had to write a thousand words. And um, I said, I could do a thousand words, I can't do a novel but I could do a thousand words. So I put together the most horrible-looking dummy you ever saw. It was on copy paper, and it was cut and paste. It looked like a ransom note. <laughs> and I sent it in because I didn't know any better. And surprisingly, and this is a lesson that I learned, it doesn't matter what your tools are. If your story is strong, that's what sells. So yeah. my story made the finals. And um, already when I... I uh, was told I made the finals, in my mind, I was already writing a second book, doing a third book, uh, thinking about, oh, maybe I'll go to HarperCollins, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll go elsewhere, I'll go, I'll go, you know, conquer the world. And I didn't win. But what happened was the judging panel were the most prestigious editors and agents in the field. And I... Talk about a high bar and having exactly. to... Exactly. And so one of them called me afterwards and said, you know, I know you didn't win, but I really liked your story. Would you like to work on it together? And we became really good friends. And nine months later, I had the book published. I had an agent. And I made more money than the, than the prize itself. Wow. What are some of the other titles of books that you've... That you've That's the only one I've done. I'm uh -huh. working on another one. It's called A's for Art Boss. It's a non... Art Boss. I like that. <laughs> it's a nonfiction uh, part... Uh, Primer for artists, part weapons manual. Well, supporting people who create art, Hunyi, is an important part of your life's work. How did you become involved in, in the Queen's Council on the Arts? They asked me to. That's, that's great. <laughs> I, I came right. into this field with, when there was no such thing as arts administration. Nobody knew what that was. It was, you look like you could walk and chew gum. What are you doing? Can you, you know, are you interested? And I said, yes, that was 20 years ago. I don't think that could happen now. Everything is very, very sophisticated, but I fit, I fit all the categories. I was a Queens girl. You know, I could a native Queens girl. Native. I, did, I played a little piano. I mean, what's not to love? And they, they said, oh, she's perfect. She knows her way around Queens. Um, and that's, that's it. And you've been there for 20 years? 20 years. Wow, wow. What's the mission of the council? And if you could talk just a little bit about the council's work before we take a, a short break. Um, it exists to support artists and their creative expression for the sole purpose of making life beautiful for all of us. And how does your grant making work? We receive grants from the city, the state. Uh, we New York State Council on the Arts, the uh, New York City DCA, Department the of Cultural Affairs, Affairs, the NEA, if you uh, private and corporate philanthropies. We also give out grants. We just made about uh, maybe 100 or so grants to local artists. Um, uh, close to $120,000 went out to support local artists throughout the borough of Queens. So we're both grant maker and grant writers. Well, you'd have to be both because you have to get the money in in order to uh, That's right. dispense it. That's right. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Hoon Yi Krakauer, the executive director of the Queens Council on the Arts. We'll be right back. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day.
I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com We're back to Rediscovering New York and our show about Astoria. My second guest is Hoongi Krakauer, the executive director of the Queen's Council on the Arts. Well, this is a show about Astoria, and we've been talking about the mission of the council, and now we're going to talk about Astoria. Um, you support artists throughout the entire borough. What had you decide to base the, the council in Astoria? Or was it based there when you first took on its reins? When... We moved to Astoria. It was because we had a real estate deal in Long Island City that was stalled. We were going to purchase a building and move our site um, on 47th Avenue between 5th and Vernon. That project never took off. One of my board members, who was the CEO of Kaufman Astoria Studios, said, I have a little space. It's a little swing space. They shoot pilots in there. We took it over, renovated it, and we were there for six years on the site of the um, studio. By the way, the Kaufman Art Center actually is in on the premises of a former movie studio way back when. I don't remember which one, but that's uh, uh, was it. Maybe it was Kaufman Studios. Is that possible? I don't remember the exact. Uh, we were Bob. Do you remember who the? Uh, I think it's famous Claire Lasky studio. Okay. Yes. Right. Bob said it was uh, uh, the Lansky Studios. Um, and the Kaufman Art Center, actually, it, it's right on the Astoria side of, of what I call the neighborhood line, 36th Avenue, between, you know, wonder where the difference, the border between Long Island City and Astoria do you, is. Do you mean the Kaufman Arts District? Is that what you're yes, referring yes, to? Yes, yeah, right. yes, yes. Okay, yes. I know it is center, sorry, the district. Um, describe the general vibe of, of, of Astoria, who knew. What do you like about Astoria? Well, right now we are located in Little Egypt, right down the street from my favorite Lebanese deli, and we. And are you're presently on Steinway Street. Steinway you're, Street. You're temporary quarters while temporary, you're Temporary. Yes. Um, on Twenty Eighth Street, and my staff love it. We we can um, eat hummus all day long. Uh, there's a great bakery. There's a great fish place. Um, uh, my son-in-law is Egyptian, so I often get calls about, well, maybe you should get some zaktar, or maybe you should bring home a little of this or that. So it's great. I get to meet all kinds of people named Ahmed, <laughs> and they um, give me great things. And so I uh, learned a little Arabic, which is also kind of cool. Um, and we really like being in Little Egypt. We really love when the artists come and they just get to walk through the streets and um, get a sense that uh, the artists that we serve uh, truly represent the world. Mm. Well, we're on radio, not television, but I have to say, you don't look the age to have a son-in-law. <laughs> um, what excites you? I know you're in Little Egypt. What excites you generally about, about Astoria, having uh, uh, had the council been based there for, for the time? That it well, I like there? the tension. I really do. Uh, there's, a, to me, a little bit of a tension. On Steinway Street, you have some what I call stubborn old goats, you know, <laughs> guys who've been there for a long time who own um, businesses, and then you have the youth uh, that you see, you know, zipping up and down in fancy cars. Um, 
And to me, I think that is a dynamic that is represented in many, many immigrant groups. It certainly was in mine when I grew up and I was a rebellious teenager in Bayside, if you could imagine. But I, I see this and I see it repeated over and over and over in the Bangladeshi community. My, my uh, board member who, um, whose building we're in is Bangladeshi. Um, and so we are surrounded by Moroccan, Bangladeshi, uh, Greek, of course, um, store owners, and then, of course, uh, artists from those countries. Uh, and it's just like Bob said, it all kind of works. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have issues of us against them. We have other kinds of issues that come up from confluence, biracial, multilingual, other kinds of challenges, which I think are the real challenges of America, mm. of the future. Is there anything, you talk about the tension, that creative tension in Astoria. Um, do you think there's anything special about that kind that you experience in Astoria that maybe, I don't want to say unique, but that is special and that is, a, is, is rarer than it is more common? Well, you know, you know, Jeff, I don't think the struggle is different. I think it's a universal struggle of just new generations coming up against old generations or just trying to find your identity, your place in the world. I think that's very universal. It's your hero's journey. But I think it looks different because the dynamics are different. Um, it is young Arab uh, people or it's young Bangladeshi youth or it's young. Um, and how they figure out their answers is informed by the context. And the context is not... Bangladesh. It's not Morocco. It is Astoria. So mm. it is a very interesting answer that they come to if they do find that answer. But the journey, I think, is the same. The people, where the people are from in Astoria and where immigrants are from has changed. Had, do you think, have you experienced any change in the vibe of the neighborhood for as long as the council has been based there? Well, we've only been there for, we've been on Steinway Street for two years. So I wouldn't really know. Um, but also the, um, the Kaufman Arts... Well, we were right in the studio, so I, my reference is Orange is the New Black versus The Wiz, you know, so I, you know, <laughs> uh, we, we were surrounded by movie people in, um, in those years. Mm. Uh, also, I would have to say that part of Astoria was mostly big box. You had Unos, you know, you had Starbucks, you didn't really have the mom and pops. You had the Regal Cinema, you had PC Richard, so you didn't have that type of dense mom-and-pop shops, uh, the, the kind of foot traffic. Um, you know, you had the Sinatra School. So it was a very different kind of crowd that we saw on that side of Astoria. Mm. As someone who, who runs a nonprofit in the neighborhood, is there anything that, that you find you struggle with in Astoria? Struggle? I just don't know where I have lunch. That's mm. the biggest struggle. Because of the, because of the, oh <laughs> the choices God. you have. <laughs> oh, my God. You could, you could eat your way up and down Steinway Street. And that's just Steinway Street. Well, I'm going to have to visit you more than once. We talked about that right before you came on the air. Um, is there anything that surprises you about Astoria, Hoogie? Um, I like to ask pointed questions about neighborhoods. The, it, 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 it makes you know for what good, will good surprise me is I'd like to see how they, they uh, make sense of gentrification. Um, I will tell you a story. There's this little old Greek lady who has a little tiny house. It's about the size of your computer. And it sits right across the street from my old site on 37th Street. And Hal, my um, board member, and his entire team have been trying to get her to sell that property. It's got this huge magnolia tree. And if you go down that street, you'll see that she's stuck by her guns, and they actually had to build a studio around her house. And she, this woman, you don't want to mess with her. She... Nothing's going to move her. And we became friends because I sat under her tree a lot, you know, during the spring. Um, but she, she is one of the, those kinds of people that sticks to the neighbor. She says, I, where am I going to go? You know, my kids are gone. Where am I going to go? I, I miss all my, I would miss all my friends across the street. I don't care how big they are. They're not getting my house. So you have that old guard. Then you have the new guard. You have on, right across the street of, um, is the mark is the, the new luxury building that the um, Kaufman people put up on the other side of the studio. So I'm curious to see how that's all going to come together. Hmm. One other question. Is there anything that you wish Astoria had as a neighborhood, but that doesn't? Uh, more bookstores? Mm-hmm. 
I would love to see independent bookstores. I would love to see a little bit more of a boho vibe on Steinway Street instead of uh, empty stores, uh, a lot of... uh, I would just say low, just box stores that are not really box stores, but they just seem to be part of chains. And they come in, they come out. Mm. I would love to see Steinway Street stabilized. Well, speaking about neighborhoods and stabilization and things that are essential, in the minute we have left, do you want to tell artists who may want to have more resources who are in Queens to be expressive, how they can get in touch with you and how they can find out about what you do? They can come to our website. It's queenscouncilarts.org. We have a grant cycle every summer. Our deadlines are in October. We have been able to give away uh, maybe twice as much money as we have been before in the last two years. We have resources. We can connect you with people. Uh, We exist to do that. So I would say to any artist looking for foothold or touchstone in Queens to contact us because we probably know people that they would like to be that they would like to know. And your website is? QueensCouncilArts.org. Great. Well, thank you. Our second guest on this program about Astoria has been Hoong Yi Krakauer, who's the executive director of the Queens Council on the Arts. Thanks for joining us this week. Uh, If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are Jeff Goodman NYC. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Chris Pappas, Mortgage Banker at TD Bank, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off, I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent in Halstead in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners, looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc.
You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 